Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Beginning in the early 1970s, everyone called him the Silver Fox. The nickname came from the gray that was increasingly overtaking his wavy dark hair. Just the mention of the name, there was no doubt who was being referred to. It was David Pearson, winner of 105 races during his 25-year NASCAR career. The native of Spartanburg, South Carolina, spent his time in the cotton mills like so many young men did in the 1950s. He had an education provided by the school system, but his real education came on the dirt and asphalt tracks of what was then NASCAR's Grand National Division. Pearson drove his own car in NASCAR competition in 1960, with his best finish being 10th at Charlotte Motor Speedway in May of that year. Team owner Bud Moore told Chief Mechanic Ray Fox he needed to take a look at this young kid named Pearson. And Fox replied, who's that? Moore said, oh, you'll get to know him. Trust me, everyone around here will get to know who this kid is. Not long after, Pearson drove John Mason's Pontiac wrench by Fox to victory in the 1961 World 600 at Charlotte. He took the checkered flag on three wheels at the finish with sparks flying. In that same year, the 24-year-old Pearson won two more Super Speedway races at Daytona and Atlanta, and Mason's Pontiac was Fox at his side. He had arrived and established himself as a winner in what's known today as the Cup Series. And by 1969, Pearson was a three-time champion, once with team owner Cotton Owens and twice with Ford's powerhouse home and movie operation. When Ford cut back its NASCAR presence in 1971, Pearson was about to sit idle. Some had even said his time at the top was over. It was time to step out at the ripe old age of 37. Oh, wait a minute. Not so fast. The Wood Brothers had the legendary A.J. Floyd at the controls of their famed number 21 Mercury, and he had even won the Daytona 500 in 1972 in February of that year. But Floyd had IndyCar obligations and had to step back into the open wheel arena. Glenn Wood called Pearson and asked if he'd be interested in a limited schedule of 17 races. 15 of those were going to be on super speedways and two on the short track at Martinsville. Pearson, tired of the championship grind, jumped at that chance and felt like he was 24 years all over again. They joined forces on April 16, 1972 at Darlington Raceway, a race Pearson won. That race started a love affair with Darlington, which ended up being six wins for the Wood Brothers to go along with two he had already won for home and moody and two more for Rod Osterlund and Hoss Ellington. Ten victories for Pearson at Darlington. Nobody's ever come close since. Oh, and a side note, all told from 1972 through five races in 79, Pearson logged 43 wins for the Wood Brothers. And in 1973 for the Wood Brothers, he won 11 of 18 races he entered that year. That's pretty amazing. 
It was like peas and carrots, spring and 70 degrees, Christmas and jingle bells. Some things just are meant to go together. Richard Petty and Pearson finished first and second to one another during their career 63 times, with Pearson winning 33 to Petty's 30. Petty even once said David Pearson was the greatest driver in NASCAR history. Pearson said he had no argument with that statement. All in all, race fans from South Carolina have two iconic conversations to talk about. David Pearson and Darlington Raceway. everyone and welcome back to lifetime and nascar podcast i'm jerry bunkowski with my good old buddy ben white down there and i'm gonna say it right today salisbury there South, you go. north carolina i know you've been taking uh lessons on that so you're getting better <laughs> okay but of course i said i said salisbury south carolina of course it's salisbury north carolina but anyway episode number 5959 we're one week away from number 60 and there we're gonna have a lot to talk about next week because that's the week of talladega but we got a lot to talk about today about bristol bristol motor speedway the dirt race this sunday um we've got we're, we got a, a good show to, uh, lined up for you folks so i think you're really going to enjoy it and you know ben one of the things that you know i i like about uh this event and we're going to talk a little bit more about the um the scheduling if you will but we'll get into that a little bit later but i like the idea that nascar really wants to pay homage to its dirt track race you know, dirt track history its history of you know racing on dirt tracks because obviously that's where the this the um the the circuit kind of you know developed i mean we started with the beach races you know at daytona but you know most of the races are you know back then were on dirt before they started having the paved ovals and things like that and you know i i will say this right off the bat i love bristol motor speedway i love dirt i just something's bugging me about this race and you know it's not about the fact it's on east or anything like that i will like i said we'll talk about that later what's bugging me though ben is that you had to bring in what I, what it was 20 tons or 200 tons of dirt whatever they're they're brought in to you know to make a dirt track out and i get it you know you want to be able to put in you know 60 70 80 000 people in the stands i get that but i don't know it, maybe it's the conservative guy inside of me that I just have a problem with it being trucked in, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, but then on the flip side, we don't have a dirt track anywhere in the country that could accommodate 70,000 or 80,000 people. I mean, the first place I thought of, and they would probably have to truck in probably 35, 40,000 temporary seats would be uh, Eldora Speedway that Tony Stewart owns. I mean, that to me is arguably the the premier dirt track in the country i love that place i've been there so many times um it just it would be the perfect venue but again how do you fit you know another 30 40 000 people into temporary stands around the place i mean there there are, is a way to do it on the back stretch and you know off of turn two and in the turn three area but that being said am i am i wrong in both being excited about this race but also kind of eh, because it is on a track that it's it's an artificially prepared track if you know you know what i'm saying i mean what what are, what are your thoughts about that 
Well, uh, I do, uh, to, to a degree, I do agree with you there, but just one point I want to make, you know, our, our, I guess our big topic of the day, of course, David Pearson, that's you know, being mm-hmm. the lead in the talking about him and Darlington, as I mentioned, going into this, but David Pearson also had 23 dirt track wins and his 105 starts or excuse me, 105 victories mm-hmm. uh, in NASCAR competition. So 23 times he won on a dirt track, which I thought was really cool. But uh, talking about Bristol, I mean, you're right. It, it it's it's from the day it was built, it was an asphalt speedway, and yeah, they have to work really hard to to get the dirt in, and then they have to work really hard to get the dirt out. <laughs> right, as far right. as uh, okay. that sounds kind of like a, a laundry detergent commercial, <laughs> doesn't it? But it's uh they have to get it in and out and then of course they got to prepare for or the normal running uh, later in the year but you know i have a solution to the problem i mean it's okay. real simple okay. and you know there's been a lot of talk and this is also a speed speedway motorsports venue uh they've been talking about north wilkesboro it's very simple all you got to do is just take up the asphalt at, at north wilkesboro it's dirt track again because i think it started off as a dirt track and voila, there you go. It's there's your dirt track. It's local. It's not too far from Bristol. Uh, everybody comes to see a dirt track race. Uh, you know, I'm sure Marcus Smith would love the idea. And there you go. There's your dirt track, and it's local. And uh, uh, we're back at Wilkesboro. But yeah, I don't know. It's um, you know, dirt track racing is something that we started off with from day one, even before NASCAR started. You know, right. the old idea of uh, my my uh my kaiser would beat your packard back in those days mm-hmm. we're gonna race down to the oak tree and circle the oak tree and come back up to the poplar tree here in this uh in this pasture and whoever wins gets the 50 bucks well that's right. how the whole thing really did start and there was no asphalt in those days and it was pretty much uh cow pastures and then they raced there long enough and they they sort of cut out the racetrack if you will and then later on uh, you know, they, as I said in last week's broadcast, I believe the, uh, you know, we talked about Wilkesboro then and the guy says, well, how much money you have? That's as far as I'm going to go. And that's when <laughs> I'm going to turn left. And that's really the way North Wilkesboro was, was built. Right. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's where I know what Bristol motor speedway management is trying to do. And I admire them for it. They're trying to be versatile. They're trying to make it an asphalt track. And then at times, at least once a year, try to make a dirt track out of it. But at the same time, um, you know, you, you do ask the question, is it, is it a true dirt track, but I admire them for what they're doing. I respect what they're doing. They're trying to give the fans something a little bit different uh, to the tune of what, what, how many tons did you say of dirt that they're bringing into? I, I think it was a lot of, a, a lot of dirt. Lot, yeah, exactly. Right. A lot of yeah. tons. Yeah. A lot of tons. And so, uh, yeah. And, and we've seen some good racing there, uh, on this, on this new surface. And as we continue to see racing there, it's going to get better and it's going to get more refined. And, and, uh, but this time, uh, as we, we've talked about in the past, you, you have a new car with the gen seven, racing on on dirt for the first time so that's going to be interesting come mm-hmm. uh come sunday and so we'll see how it goes but yeah uh, you know dirt is an, an entirely different animal than what you'd set up a car for for asphalt and uh, a different way of driving it a different way of managing it and so a different tire everything so we'll just see how how it all plays out on sunday well let, let me ask you this you mentioned north Wilkesboro. i just looked it up while you were talking 
So according to what uh, the track itself says, they can seat 40,000 people. I've, I don't, I've driven by North Wilkesboro. I've never actually been at the track per se. Obviously, there's a lot of um, capital improvement that has to be done you know, for them to bring it up to, uh, to code, if you will, for NASCAR. But is 40,000 seats enough or is there, an, I mean, you know North Wilkesboro, you've been there a number numbers times, number of times. So can they, if they had to, you know, bring in maybe let's say another 20,000 temporary seats. I mean, could they, could they run a race with 60,000 or, you know, conversely, could they run a race at 40,000? To me, 40,000 seems a little too, you know, too little, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, when you said 40,000 to me, that seems a little bit low. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, every time I saw races at Wilkesboro, it was some of those were standing room only type races and everybody kind of scrunched in and <laughs> fit a few more in because right, right. the races there at Wilkesboro are always exciting. Uh, to me, they were. And uh, yeah, it was Junior Johnson country. It was Kale Yarborough country. You knew that when those guys, uh, Kale and Daryl and even Bobby Allison in the early 70s, anybody who'd raced for Junior Johnson were probably going to race uh, and win there for junior because that was kind of a prerequisite to, to the old handshake. If you're going to drive for junior plan on winning at Wilkesboro, you better win at Wilkesboro. That was in, <laughs> right. pretty right. much in his backyard. Right. The same way that Charlotte Motor Speedway is in the backyard of Hendrick Motorsports. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a very unique racetrack talking about North Wilkesboro. The, the front stretch goes downhill. The back stretch goes uphill. And it's just a great old racetrack. And it was just very sad to see the track go away. I believe in what, 1996, I think it was the last right. one Jeff Gordon yeah. won it. Right. And uh, gosh, I mean, you just to talk about a sad day in NASCAR that that track went away and, and it's been there for years. It was in pretty good shape. I remember one year, Kevin Harvick took a car there when he was driving for Richard Childress tested there and said don't do a thing to the track itself because it's still in great shape that that's about the time the building started to deteriorate mm -hmm. but the track was still good and then dale earnhardt jr went there and helped with some eye racing uh they kind of mapped it out to to make it exact and uh went there then and so but yeah for many many years i mean we had so many great races there at wilkesboro and and uh dating way back into i can't remember the exact year it started but it was it was just a great old racetrack and mm -hmm. and being from the the welcome lexington area it's where i grew up i'm actually from clinton north carolina but i grew up in the welcome lexington area it was 45 minutes uh, to get to Wilkesbury, you could actually go to church and be out of church about noon grab a few biscuits so to speak off the table pop them in your pockets and, and head that way. And you could be at the racetrack by one mm -hmm. races start about one fifteen, Right. And, uh, you know, you could be in the stands and it's just one of those great racetracks, not too far from home. You see a great race, be home, uh, about five 30 or six o'clock. And, uh, I saw Bobby Allison win there, Daryl win there, uh, Jeff would back after I started writing. So a bunch of writers, I mean, excuse me, a bunch of drivers win there. And, uh, uh, so yeah, just a great racetrack. And I, I wish it was still on the circuit. It was you, a lot of fun to cover races there. Right. You, you know, you raise you know, some very good points about North Wilkesboro because, you know, here's a track that, you know, there's right now there is a, um, 
a resurrection, if you will, of the track. I know that Speedway Motorsports is starting to put more money into that. And from what I understand, and I don't really know what the plan is. I'm obviously assuming that they're going to race again. If they wouldn't, they wouldn't be putting money if they're not going to race. But I kind of like your angle. I really like your angle, Ben, about let's use North Wilkesboro, put the dirt on there. And uh, North Wilkesboro is, correct me if I'm wrong, a half mile or three quarters mile? What, what's it's this? a half mile. It is a half mile. Okay, so yeah. we could do it. Um, is the, and, and this is always, I always like to look at the glass half half full or half empty, depending on the circumstance. I mean, is there enough of an infrastructure, though, around there now that could support, you know, if let's say 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 fans come there, you know, whether they, uh, you know, um, fill the existing seats or if they have to bring in more seats could the infrastructure you know the the highways the roads the restaurants the hotels i mean all that because you know it, it, it is a little bit of a hike from the charlotte area it's what probably about 45 minutes to an hour i'm gonna guess um you know i mean does it have the infrastructure outside of the track to oh, yeah. support support a race oh yeah absolutely and and there are plenty of hotels around the North Wilkesboro area. There's plenty of restaurants not too far away from right in there in the, in the Wilkesboro area. I mean, they supported it for many years. And, and sure, I, I think, uh, and see, that would be another reason to make a dirt track out of it, because it just saves you the expense of having to repave what's there. Yeah, that's true. And, that's you know, true. you save money by doing that. You put that money into building new buildings and new seats. I don't know what it costs to pave a, a half mile racetrack. I have no idea, but that's a savings. And so there's your dirt track uh, as far as having a, a, a dirt track on the cup series. And then of course you can entertain, um, you know, some late model type cars uh, various times throughout the year. Mm -hmm. I don't see, I mean, I, I'm not a contractor. I don't know. And I know, uh, I do, I do know this much. I know that building supplies and building materials and all that has gone through the roof. I saw the other day where a four by eight sheet, three quarter inch plywood was like 80 bucks, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is nuts. Yep, I don't I agree. get it. I mm -hmm. truly do not get it. I mean, you know, you have to go to the bank to get a loan just for a, a four by eight sheet of plywood. That's crazy. But right. I do know that. However, I just, I know there's a lot of expense in, in redoing Wilkesboro, but I think it's, I think it's doable. And, uh, you know, uh, if you wanted to have a dirt track, there's your dirt track goes back to the roots of NASCAR goes back to the beginning of NASCAR. I, you know, I, I still say, and, and I'm dreaming here, but we like to speculate and we like to have fun on this show. I still say, pull the 2021 cars out of mothballs, put some dirt track tires on them save your best equipment for the bigger tracks. You know, these cars are massively expensive. Now take some of those cars that you're not going to run anymore, make dirt track cars out of them and go have some fun in them and, and put them on a track like Wilkesboro. And believe me, you're looking at a major marketing uh, venue there that uh, sponsored to jump all over TV would jump all over. I uh, just say, why not at least look at it and, and see what, what your marketing possibilities are. I, I think it's very doable. My, I like that idea. I definitely like that idea. So we're going to come back to talking, <clears throat> excuse me, more about the, the Sunday's race, the Bristol uh, dirt track race in a little bit, but we want to get back 
to the the main crux of what we were going to talk about in today's show and again a lifetime in nascar podcast with ben white and jerry bunkowski episode number 59 and this is really you know the 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 big topic of today's show is um a gentleman who had an incredible racing career number two all time in uh cup wins uh behind richard petty and you know he was just a guy that um you know uh, richard petty you know has told me he's told pretty much everybody that's ever asked him who was the most uh, uh toughest competitor he ever faced and the the same two names or the same name came out the same two words and ben i'm going to leave that to you to introduce who we're going to talk about in this episode segment of the show well uh, yeah and as i led in with the with today's show of course a gentleman that I guess sort of a man of few words, but he did a lot of his talking, all of his talking actually on the racetrack. David Pearson, a three-time mm-hmm. NASCAR champion, winner of 105 races, but a place that he really excelled throughout his career was Darlington Raceway. And he had 10 victories on that 1.366 mile racetrack. Actually, for a, a lot of its years, uh, the track was 1.25 miles originally. But uh, Pearson won 10 times there. And uh, a little bit of personal history I'd like to share with you. We've mentioned Mm -hmm. this a little bit before on the show. But uh, I actually saw, he. well, let me back up just a quick second. David won there in 1968 for the first time, driving for Holman Moody. uh, And he won again there in 1970, driving for Holman Moody. But then he was a little bit between rides in 1971. Uh, he did have a ride with a gentleman by the name of Chris Vallow. It was a limited uh, schedule that after he left Holman Moody and Holman Moody sort of fell on sometimes in uh, late uh, 71 when Ford Motor Company sort of elected to come out of NASCAR a little bit. They had, and, and to give you some background on Holman Moody, it was a Ford factory uh, race car shop. They built race cars throughout the 60s, but then by the end of the of the 60s into 1970, 71, right in that range. They weren't building race cars as much. Ford had sort of backed out of the the NASCAR venue a bit. And so uh, David was looking to do something different. This gentleman by the name of Chris Vallow uh, was going to fill Pontiacs. Sadly, he lost his life in a boating accident. And so David was sort of between rides. So uh in 1972 uh april 16th of 1972 as a matter of fact this is how i get into the story my dad came to myself and two brothers and said hey there's a racetrack in south carolina it's called darlington raceway would you guys like to go to a race i Mm -hmm. said yeah what is that i really didn't know anything about nascar my brothers didn't either i was 11 years old my brother doug was uh 12 my brother cullen was 13 all three of us pretty close in age. So one Sunday morning, we decided to go to something called the Rebel 400 at Darlington. I, and believe me, I knew nothing about NASCAR. I knew of Richard Petty because mm-hmm. he was uh, endorsing Ray's hamburgers <laughs> out of Ashboro as a small chain. And he also had Polaroid sunglasses. So that's the only time I knew this, of this guy named Richard Petty. That's all I knew about NASCAR. We go in this place. by that time they had remodeled the racetrack. David Pearson's driving for the Wood Brothers in the 21 car. 
my dad was actually driving a Mercury Montego. This was a Cyclone, same body style. And he says, hmm, that looks like my car in the driveway. So I'm going to drive. I'm going to pull for that car. Didn't know who David Pearson was. I saw Bobby Allison in the Coca-Cola Chevrolet, number 12, Junior Johnson car. I said, hmm, I like that one. I'll pull for them. And keep in mind, I didn't know anything about it. My brother, Doug, went for Richard Petty. My brother, Cullen, went also with Bobby Allison. And I'm telling you people, this was the coolest experience in my 11 years I'd never seen. It was a beautiful day there in Darlington. Bobby and David started on the front row. I think Bobby had the pole that day mm-hmm. and David on the outside, the front row, the greatest experience of my life that day, I fell in love with NASCAR and here it is 50 years to the day. Actually, Saturday is coming Saturday, April 16th will be 50 years. And that was the first time that David Pearson got into a Wood Brothers Mercury and he ended up winning this race. And that was the third time that he won a race at Darlington. And as, uh, as it turned out, he won 10 races at Darlington Raceway. And there was just something magical about his driving style in that racetrack. And then, believe me, that track is very difficult to drive. I've heard many drivers say to me that, and even Dale Earnhardt told me this too. He said, you could drive around that place 300 times and just be smooth as silk. And that 301st lap, the thing is almost like it would literally grab you and put you in the wall. And you're looking backward at the cars coming at you. And you say, what happened? Mm-hmm. That's how quickly the, the track would so-called grab you and, and put you in the wall. But back to that particular Sunday afternoon, you know, I, again, I'd never seen anything so phenomenal like it. I'd never seen anything. Uh, it was just wonderful to see the colors of the cars, to see the fast cars, to see this race. And at 293 laps is what 400 miles equated to then. They mm-hmm. upped it to 500 miles later at 367 laps. Well, we would go every year, every April uh, to this racetrack, on the, usually to the, the spring event, a few times to the Southern 500 in September, but mostly that particular race and we got so tired of the fact that david pearson would win that race every spring <laughs> and about every time bobby allison won both races in 75 and benny parsons won it in 78 in the spring race but it was just every time we get so tired of david pearson winning that race but he was so good at darlington yep, yep. he was so so good there and you know i'd even asked the wood brothers why was he so good and they said to be honest with you, we really don't know. It was just one of those tracks that he was so used to and so comfortable with. And whatever turn, we could set the cars up for one and two or three and four, but it was an egg-shaped racetrack. And he, he could just adapt to any, any place. But that, that track particularly, David was extremely good at and, and knew how to get around the place. Right, right. Well, Ben, you know, as you were talking, I was looking up something about David, and we're taping this show on Wednesday, April 13th, and lo and behold, this is the 42nd anniversary of David Pearson's 105th and final cup race win, and where was it at, Ben? Darlington Raceway. There you go. April 13th, 1980. 
Yep, I didn't. And I'm, I'm looking at, I said, you know, the notes you sent me and I'm looking at April 13th. That's today. You know, I mean, yeah. we're taping it today. That How cool is that? I mean, you know, we're happy anniversary to David, you know, I mean. Yeah, uh, but you know what, Jerry, there's also a backstory to that, okay. that story. All right. All right. And, and that particular day, he was driving a Chevrolet for uh, Haas Ellington, who that was the car that Donnie Allison uh, had been driving for for many years. You know, Donnie was in that car in 1979 during the Great Fight at, uh, at the night after the 1979 Daytona 500. Right. Uh, he and Haas Ellington and Donnie decided to go their separate ways and earlier a race or two before that and then of course again david pearson uh, is available and it happens to be at the time of the schedule where darlington's coming up we'll get who's the one guy you want in your car when darlington's coming up well, of course it's david pearson right right but you back up a little bit further uh and you go the year before and this is uh i want to go back to july 30th of 1979 this is prior to the 1979 southern 500 mm -hmm. uh there at darlington which is the what do you would call the granddaddy of them all this is a very prestigious race at darlington which is the one around labor day mm -hmm. okay on july 30th 1979 dale earnhardt uh sadly he gets into a crash at pocono and breaks both uh, collarbones and he's driving a chevrolet for rod osterland the number two car He's running for rookie of the year that year, and he's leading the race at Pocono, and he blows a right front tire and gets into the wall very hard and is in, badly injured. Well, the next uh, week, uh, I'm sorry, he goes uh, and, and calls upon David Pearson to drive the car Rod Osterland does the next week. Okay, but this leads through August, and then they go into the Southern 500 in Darlington. So again, the, the one guy that's available throughout the month of August leading in to the Southern 500 uh, Labor Day, of course, is David Pearson. And, and they tell him, you know, you're probably going to be in the car about six weeks because Dale Earnhardt's going to be out for about six weeks. Once again, David's available for a race at Darlington, which is the Southern 500. And guess what? He ends up winning the <laughs> Southern 500 of 79, right. driving for Rod Osterling. So again, He's, he drives uh, Fords for Holman Moody. He drives Mercury's for the Wood Brothers all those years. And he drives uh, Chevrolet's for Haas Ellington and Rod Osterland. It doesn't matter what he drives. He's at Darlington and he wins. Right, right. But in, in the reason he was available in 79, let me back up slightly, in April of 79, he's making a pit stop at Darlington. Everything seems to happen at Darlington for David. He's making a pit stop. With the Wood Brothers, they have a miscommunication in the car. When they say to him on the radio, uh, he thinks they say go. They say, whoa. Oh, no. And they're making a four-tire stop, and he takes off, and the left-side tires are not bolted to the car. So he gets down the end of pit road, and he loses two tires. Uh, and this is kind of the beginning of the end for the relationship between the Wood Brothers and David. And then they part ways. And that's, then Neil Bonnet gets in the 21 car, leaving David out. And that's why he's available to drive for the, for Australia in that year. Is, is that surprising though, that split? Because I mean, 
you know, David Pearson is David Pearson. We're talking, you know, he's the same kind of caliber, same kind of class as a Richard Petty. I mean, yeah, I know you said that there, it was kind of like the, the, the end of the road, if you will, with the relationship with him and the Wood Brothers, but how does, how does, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic in how I say this, how do the Wood Brothers let a guy who is arguably the second best driver the sport has ever seen go? Since April of 1979 until um, today, they've been asking themselves that question. <laughs> they have, because I've asked Eddie Wood and Leonard, I said, what happened? And that's I've written about this several times in my career. And they've asked, I've asked that question. And they said, we really don't know. We, you know, had we had it to do over again, had we had time to think about it, had we had time to talk about it, we'd have never let him go. And it was just one of those heat of the moment things. You know, they weren't communicating very well at the, at the beginning of 79. It, you know, they, keep in mind, they had been together from April 16th of 72 until April 15th, whatever that date was, uh, of 79. And they had been together a long time. They knew each other. They, you know, how maybe the marriage had just taken a tough spot. Okay. But if they had it to do over a second time, I've heard Eddie tell me this, if it's not once it's 50 times, wished they had had a chance to go have a, a soft drink and talk about it. And they would have stayed together, but the people and their, their sponsor had said, maybe it's time to make a change. And Neil Bonnet was available. Actually, Neil Bonnet, believe it or not, was testing an IndyCar at Indianapolis when someone come out to get him to said, hey, there's a guy on the phone that wants to talk to you. He said, well, I'm kind of busy now. I'm testing an IndyCar. He said, no, no, you need to take this, this phone call. It's a guy named Glenn Wood. <laughs> and he's like, really? He's like, yeah, some guy. So the guy said, some guy named Glenn Wood. So he gets out of the, out of the Indy car, Neil Bonnet does gets out of the Indy car unstraps himself and runs into the media center. And that's when Glenn Wood offers him a job in the 21 car. He said, are you kidding me? <laughs> is this really Glenn Wood? He said, yeah, this is Glenn Wood. Uh, we made a change and David's not going to drive the 21 car anymore. Would you like to drive the 21 car? He said, yeah, um, I'll see you. We'll come. I'll see you in a day or two. I'm at Indy testing, but we, are you sure you want to drive it? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, he thought it was a joke at first. Right. That's how, how, how strange and weird the whole thing sounded. Uh, are you sure? It's, it's kind of like, are you sure you're, I mean, really? Cause he's like, David Pearson is not going to drive it. I remember seeing the headlines in the newspapers, David Pearson to no longer drive for the Wood Brothers. It was shocking. Right. It was right. like seeing Richard Petty no longer to drive for Petty Enterprises. Right. I mean, you're right. It was a big deal. And over that one little incident, uh, now we've seen that kind of incident happen before. I remember one time it happened with Dale Earnhardt at Charlotte when he came off of pit road and lost two tires and the crew ran down pit road with tires and a jack. You remember that? <laughs> and they put the tires back on there and brought him back to pit road. That's, but yeah, it, that's what caused the split. And it was just shocking to see that the headlines, David Pearson has been fired from the Wood Brothers. Really, really hard to swallow. I was like, really? Couldn't believe it. Now, now that also kind of, and, and I mean this in a good way, when Neil Bonnet gets this opportunity to drive for the Wood Brothers, obviously he grabs it. 
but it also ended any chance of him racing in an IndyCar, correct? Am I wrong about that? Uh, um, yes. Yeah, he he basically said to the team owner, you, uh, you, you got to understand, stock cars is my big deal. Mm-hmm. And this is not, and no disrespect intended, but I'll see you later. I mean, <laughs> that that's pretty much what happened because right. he, and, and again, I mean, the magnitude of what, what the phone call meant, it was, if you could imagine the biggest writing opportunity that you could ever expect to come your way. Mm-hmm. And it's the most unexpected phone call of your life coming your way. I mean, that's how big it was for Neil Bonnet. Because, um, you know, he was, he was at that time, he was trying to land something. He had already had a, a decent ride or two, but nothing as big as the Wood Brothers. And the, the fact that David uh, was no longer in the car and they were looking for, and they, he was the first on the list that they called, uh, that was big for Neil. And it was shocking, like I said, for everybody. I just, again, I remember the headlines and, what a big deal it was. I'm trying to find, and I guess that's the big thing to equate that to is to say Richard Petty has been fired from Petty Enterprises or something like that. It was huge. I just remember how big it was. And when that happened, and I mean, keep in mind, Pearson was the silver Fox. He won everything. He was the second winningest driver in NASCAR. I mean, it was, it was just like the divorce of all divorces. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. This can't be happening. Right. And it all came from one bad pit stop. But again, to ask Leonard Wood, Eddie Wood, Lynn Wood, would you do it over? They said, we do it over in a heartbeat and we do it a thousand percent different. But the fun part about the story was they remained close friends for years. Mm -hmm. And another part of the story was when, ironically, when Neil uh, had some injuries, uh, in in 1986 there was a possibility a strong possibility david was going to get back in the car as a relief driver Hmm. and he tested a car he was going to test a car let me say it that way at charlotte and he had recurring back issues and didn't get back in the car but that was going to be a big story of david pearson returning to the number 21 car as a relief driver to drive at charlotte in, in october of 86 and it didn't it didn't materialize I'm curious if you know the answer to this or if you don't, but, you know, once David was fired, once they bring in Neil Bonnet, did David and Neil ever talk about that whole thing? I mean, how it all transpired? I mean, was, I mean, and and were they, you know, obviously Neil is like any other race car driver. He gets an opportunity like that. He's going to jump at it. Certainly anybody would do that. But I mean, I'm curious if, if you know whether or not David Pearson, Neil Bonnet, ever did talk about that whole thing because like you said i mean there was a possibility of david uh you know returning to the wood brothers to fill in for neil and of course he couldn't because of his back but it it, it, i'm curious if you know whether or not the two of them ever i don't want to use the word hashed it out but discussed it i don't think they ever did and the reason i say that is because david was the kind of guy that said, well, what is, 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 you know, mm-hmm. he, he never was one of those types of people to go back and rethink it or rehash it or, you know, it, and it was one of those things that five minutes after it happened, they wished it hadn't, Yeah, but it was too far down the pike to do anything about it. And I think the influencing signal uh, or part of that equation, so to speak, was the sponsor. I don't, I think if the sponsor maybe hadn't had an influence on the change, then, then it wouldn't have gone that far. 
Yeah, but what but, kind of sponsor gets rid of David Pearson? I mean, that's like, you know, a sponsor getting rid of Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon, you know, in their prime. I mean, what kind of sponsor gets rid of a, well, you know, a legend like I, David Pearson? I don't I don't know. Um I think there were too many wheels in, in motion mm-hmm. and too many emotions in motion. Okay. And I think it just, but, but again, they were uh, seven years and their seventh year together. I think and it was just, it was things were just not clicking like they wanted them to. And um, I don't know. It was just one of those bad days, bad conversations that if you could just go back to bed and, start over you would have but here's an interesting fact about david i was again eddie wood's a close friend of mine and we talked about this he said he could count on one hand and take two fingers away (laughs) the times that david wrecked a car Mm -hmm. and that's why you if you're a sheet metal enthusiast and a collector out there you can't find any david pearson sheet metal because there's not any i think i know of one piece that a gentleman has, I'm not sure where he's from, but I've seen it online. It's a, it's a passenger side door. And he said, that's the only piece he knows of, because he said, we never, we never, he never wrecked anything. <laughs> I know of a, uh, he, he was, David was involved in a crash at Charlotte Motor Speedway um, in 1971, mm-hmm. October of 71, I believe. And he was in a crash at Daytona in 78. But I mean, you you could count on one hand the times that that car got wrecked because David never wrecked. And typically, it wasn't his fault anyhow. Right, he was caught up in somebody right. else's. And I and I do remember in '75, he and Biddy Parsons were racing for the lead in the Rebel 400, Rebel 500 at Darlington, and he and Benny locked bumpers in turn two. Uh, reason I know that because I was there as a fan, and that was the only other time. So I could count three times and. And what three four hundred races that he wrecked. That's right. why that sheet metal's not out there because he never wrecked. So that's how good he was. It, it's just one of those things that it just came down to a, a frustration on a Sunday afternoon, and they made a change. And then it's no kidding. Fifteen minutes later, or a day later, they wish she'd not done it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you know, um, before we move on to the next segment. We've talked a lot about you know David Pearson's um, superiority at Darlington Raceway, and I, I I don't want to put a, a downer, if you will, on the conversation. But uh, we did lose someone a week ago um, who was very instrumental at Darlington Raceway, and I'm talking about Chris Browning, the former president mm-hmm. of, of Darlington. We lost him at the far too young age of 58 years old. I don't know if it was, you know, due to illness or what have you, but, you know, he was there at uh, the president of Darlington Raceway from uh, uh, 2004 through 2013 and was very instrumental in, you know, bringing that racetrack, um, you know, just improving virtually everything there. I mean, the grandstands, he built uh, one of the biggest things he did was he brought in the big tunnel, which, you know, before that they didn't have, the, you know, a, a tunnel where they could bring in all the, the trucks and everything like that. He built in a, a beautiful tunnel where they could bring the semis in underneath the track. Um, you know, he uh, did other capital uh, improvements. He also laid the groundwork for future uh, capital improvements that have happened since his uh, departure from the track. But Chris Browning, I mean, I talked to Chris maybe a handful of times. I mean, it's not like we were really super close friends, but 
you know, I admired him for the job he did at, um, at Darlington. You know, he was involved in NASCAR for a long, long time, uh, both before and after that. And, you know, I was very surprised to see and learn of his passing at such a very young age. Do you, do you, I'm curious, do you have any good stories about, about your um, uh, relationship and, and interaction with Chris Browning, the former yeah. president of Darlington? Yeah, I do, Jerry. And, and uh, first off, uh, I just very sad to hear of Chris's passing. And, and Chris was one of those guys that would bend over completely backwards to help a media mm-hmm. member, help a fan, help a driver, help anybody he could to make sure that they had what they needed, not only at the racetrack, but as a friend. Mm-hmm. And he was just somebody that I had a great deal of admiration for. Uh, and and I, I do have a, a couple of quick ones here. Uh, back in the early 90s, he was the public relations director for uh, Sterling Marlin when Sterling was driving for Junior Johnson when he had the Maxwell House sponsorship. And I was working for NASCAR Illustrated at, at the time, and he came to me and we talked a little bit about my, myself working as a, a public relations person for Sterling and working that Maxwell House account. And I, I was just really happy doing what I was doing at NASCAR <laughs> Illustrated. And so no worries. He just wanted to see if I wanted to be interested in that and doing that. We remained friends for many years. And then the second time we talked about me possibly doing public relations uh, as a PR director for Darlington Raceway. And that would have been kind of cool because, you know, like I said, I saw my first race at Darlington. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how cool would that be if I came back years later to be the PR director at Darlington? But that again, it just, the timing wasn't right. And I just, I was happy doing the writing side more so than the PR side. And again, that just didn't, the pieces of the puzzle didn't fit quite right. No hard feelings. It just didn't work. But yeah, he was just a a phenomenal friend, a great member of the NMPA, National Motorsports Press. And one year he won the John, Joe Little John Award Mm -hmm. for just service to the NMPA because he was a big fan of us and helped us any way we could while he was president of the uh, Darlington Raceway just a great friend and I'm so sorry we lost him and our thoughts and prayers are with his family and somebody that I had a lot of admiration for and always will. And I, I'm glad you brought him up because uh, too many times we, you know, I, I say this lovingly with everybody in racing, we, we compete against each other as writers, as drivers, as crew members, you know, and all that. But when we're all a big family, you know, that, right. And, right we love each other. We see each other sometimes more than we see our own families. And we just, it's one big family. You hear that cliche all the time, but it truly is one big family. And when we lose somebody in this family, it's it's sad. And we've lost in the past five years, we've lost a bunch of people that it's, it's hard to take, but uh, you know, just got great memories of everybody. And Chris is one of those great people. He really was. I have two uh, other things I wanted to mention about Chris, and one thing I forgot to uh, include when I was talking about the capital improvements that he made to the racetrack. He was a gentleman that brought the lights to Darlington. I mean, before they had never had lights, and he brought, you know, he had he oversaw the installation of lights, so they were able to race at night. And I mean, that was no pun intended, night and day difference. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we we loved watching the races during the day, but man, when you had a night race at Darlington it just kind of seemed to elevate everybody's mood, everybody's um, spirit, even seemed to me, to me, you know, this is just my opinion. 
it seemed to elevate the driver's uh, competition. I mean, you know, I, I remember uh, I was at a, I think it was the Southern 500. I can't remember what year it was. It was a day race, but then came back to Darlington. I think it was, I can't remember if it was the first race after they installed lights or maybe the second, I can't remember exactly, but um, I was just so struck, you know, standing in the infield, how the, dynamic was so different i mean the crowd seemed different the fans you know the dri their drivers seemed different i mean there's just it was such a huge 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 improvement in fact if i'm not mistaken i believe it was darlington and chris browning's uh effort to bring lights there that actually spurred i know for sure uh, it was chicagoland speedway they brought lights on as a result of that and i think Kansas Speedway, I believe as well. I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure about Chicagoland Speedway that they saw the impact of what the lights were at Darlington and they they um, they they kind of did the same thing. So, um, and the other thing I was going to mention about Chris, and again, like I said, I, I interviewed him and talked to him maybe a half dozen times over the years. The one thing that I remind that remind that uh, stands out or that my, one of my favorite memories of him, I remember I was doing an interview in his office one day and. I don't know. It was just something about his laugh. It was mm -hmm. just like this incredible laugh. It reminded me a lot of actually Benny Parsons's laugh of all things. I don't know why it did, but it did. He mm -hmm. just had this, this sense of humor. He almost always had a smile on his face. And you're right. I mean, he was such a, a big advocate of, of everybody in the sport. The NMPA, obviously, was a huge advocate for that. And, you know, and rightly so, he was awarded the, the, the Joe Littlejohn Award, you know, for his excellence as a, a PR uh, uh, person, as well as, you know, track operator, track owner, I'm sorry, track um, uh, president, rather. Um, it just, you know, he just, he was good people. He was good people. To yes, talk he to. was. So yeah, going to miss him a lot. Exactly, exactly. Well, Ben, you know, we wanted we were going to go back and talk a little bit about Bristol and the in the dirt race, but I want to make sure we, um, you know, we one of our standard things that we do on every episode, and again, this is episode fifty nine of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast, is we always equate the episode number with a race car number. So, Ben, tell us about the history of the number fifty nine, and and that it was a car to me that, um, you know. It, it's it's out there, but just like a lot of other numbers that we've done in over the last two, three months, it just did not have the success. I mean, at least it had a few wins, but it didn't have the overwhelming success. Let's say like a, a 48 or a three or a 29 or, or I'm sorry, 20, 24 rather, or, you know, even a 43. So tell us about the number 59. Well, number 59 did go to victory lane three times. We've had some cars that didn't go to victory lane, but this one did. Uh, driver Tom Pistoni, uh, Tiger from Tom. the Chicago you gotta, you gotta area. See, you got to see Tiger Tom. Tiger Tom. Tiger Tom. Okay, yeah, and uh, he actually uh, drove the car to Victory Lane twice. Uh, that what came on May seventeenth, nineteen fifty nine, in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, it also July twenty first, nineteen fifty nine, at Richmond. Um, and you know what, Jerry, I. I think I've missed one here. There's, it actually went three times and I only wrote down two. So we need to look, look at that while I'm telling you. Sure. I will. You can help me there while yeah. I'm telling the first start. Sure. I missed that one. Sure. Bill Rexford actually September 1st, 1949 was the first uh, driver to drive number, uh, 59. Uh, and he did it at Langhorde PA Langhorde Speedway. We talked about Langhorde a lot. It's actually, a 
a circular racetrack, believe it or not, had no straightaways. It was just a circle, if you could imagine. And he started 23rd in that race and finished 14th. Uh, Bill Rexford was the driver there, but, uh, yeah, 59 was one of those, one of those, uh, numbers that did not win a lot, but it did actually go to victory lane three times. And, uh, but it's, it was many years ago, actually what 62 years ago since the, uh, since the number went to victory lane. The first winner of the, in the 59 was, I just had it here and I just lost her. Give me once. There we go. Uh, it was Lloyd Moore, 1950. Yep. In Winchester, at Winchester Speedway. That's that's. Okay, thanks for the assist. There. Sure. Thanks for the relief driving. I, I had my notes and I, I remember working on uh, Tom's wins and I just failed to write that one down. I thought, that's okay. okay. I got three wins and one driver. And that's not right. Well, I mean, so, you know, Lloyd Moore, he he was in that car for quite, uh, let's see, he was in there for uh, about two, three seasons, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And then that was actually, he was the first, uh, well, actually Bill Rexford had the first two races in those cars in the number 59 and 49 and then 1950 lloyd moore takes over at daytona and he was in that car for three years and then we had other drivers included um uh the immortal blackie pitt he was in there for a long time tom pistone um he was in obviously tom pistone is the uncle of um sirius xm nascar radio's uh, morning uh co-host uh, pete pistone who lives here in chicago uh curtis turner raced a couple of times in the 59 uh, Pistone actually had a very long history uh, in the 59. I'm, I'm going through the records here on racingreference.com. Ralph Earnhardt. Now, this one is a surprise. He drove the number 59 at Concord in 1962. Looks like that was the only time he drove that that number. But Pistone, I mean, he drove that car all the way through, um, let's see here, 1967. And then here's a few other names that uh, are going to uh, stick out at us. And, and this name in particular uh, because he was the, the, I believe, the first winner ever at Talladega, which is next week, and that's Richard Brickhouse. He won, or I'm sorry, he didn't win, but he he raced the uh, 59 for I think looks like three races. Donnie Allison was in that car several times. Um, Andy Belmont, um, and then you know the the interesting thing, Ben, is that I'm looking at from 1989 to. Uh, um, so let's see here. No, I, I misread that. Um, the car. In 92, Andy Belmont, his last race in that car was in, at uh, at Darlington in uh, in the uh, um, uh, Ex- just, no the no it was in the um, it was in the in um, at Darlington in 92. Then nobody raced that car until the car number until 2002, when we had Randy Renfro, Jason Small, Carl Long. And then and nobody raced in 2003. In 2004, Klaus Graf, who I have never even heard of, raced that at Sonoma. He must have been a road course ringer. And then, again, the car didn't race for 12 years. Michael McDowell, he raced, raced it at the Daytona 500 in 2016, and he raced it in the season finale at Homestead that year, and we have not seen the 59 since then. So, you know, interesting car number. Uh, I have the exact number. If you give me one quick second, it had... Um, Oh, where'd it go? I just lost it here. Um, I think it was like 200 and some starts there, but um, and I, I, I'm trying to talk, find it as I, as I'm talking here, but um, you know, an interesting, interesting car number that, you know, again, we, you know, we've had several cars where, you know, they, they had, you know, a hand, okay. 239 starts ahead, three wins, 39 top fives, 81 top tens and four poles. So, you know, it's, it's a number that, 
it's out there still. If anybody wants to get it, hey, it's available. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay. With my 50 cents and your uh, 10 million, we'll, <laughs> my two we'll start a team and use 59. How about that? There you go. There you go. But thanks exactly. for, uh, you know, sometimes uh, hosts have to have a relief driver. So we pulled in the pits and dropped the window net there and I crawled out and Jerry crawled in. So thanks for your help on that. I'm the racing reference ringer. That's, that's me. There you go. Sometimes you, you know, it gets hot out there and you need a little water and, you know, a little bit of exhaust fumes. You got to have a relief drive. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, let, let's get, you know, let's go back to, to Darling. I mean, to uh, Bristol, you know, this weekend's race, the, the big race. And, you know, this is a very, um, all kidding aside, this is a very, it's going to be interesting to see how this race plays out. And, you know, again, I'm trying to be diplomatic about it. And Ben, I know you and I talked uh, before the show, it's a very um, unusual scheduling of the race, because to my knowledge, it is the first ever NASCAR cup race that's ever been held on an Easter Sunday. Now, let me clarify that though. I'm pretty sure there was at least one time uh, I want to say was maybe, oh gosh, sometime in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly, there was a race at, uh, and I, I don't remember if it was Bristol or was somewhere else, but um, it was a race that was held on the Saturday night before Easter Sunday race got rained out and the race was on held in on Easter Sunday, but that was more uh by default because of weather reasons this one this race is scheduled and it's you know i'd like to take a few minutes ben we, you know, we talked about this off the air uh, you know people there's going to be a lot of people i'm sure that are going to say well why did nascar run this on easter sunday i mean it's the the high holy day of the christian faith um you know it, it it's it's one of the most uh, re- revered re- uh, dates in religion, you know, the, the Christian religion, the Catholic religion, etc. And, you know, I wrote a piece uh, for this week's Out of the Groove, my trading pain column, uh, you know, that Ben obviously writes for as well, too. And I said, I started writing the piece, I said to myself, you know, I'm totally against this, I, I totally don't want to see a race on Easter Sunday. And, and Ben, I'm going to obviously let you chime in here in a second about that, too. Because I know you've got some very strong opinions about that. But then I started thinking about it, Ben, and, you know, as I mentioned to you off the air, I'm still not 100% in favor of a race being held on such a very, um, you know, revered Christian or, you know, revered religious holiday. Let's not not even say Christian, let's just say revered religious holiday. But then I started thinking about it and I said, well, you know, maybe I'm, I'm looking at this the wrong way because, you know, we've had we have all kinds of sporting events on other holidays, which include religious holidays. And I'll, you know, I mean, we have Thanksgiving. I mean, what's Thanksgiving known for? Turkey and the NFL. I mean, you know, the, there's usually two or three, sometimes even three rate uh, NFL games on, you know, on a, it's not so much a religious holiday, but obviously it's a, it's a holiday. It's very important to those of us that live here in the United States. Then there's Christmas, which, you know, uh, the NFL has played some games on Christmas day, but more so the NBA they're known for their double headers. And, you know, I remember this is going back probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 years, maybe uh, there was a big dust up among fans that, well, why is uh, the NBA, you know, playing games on Christmas day or Christmas evening? And 
there was a, a big um, to do about it, but as it turned out, it was a marketing genius, if you will, from the NBA, because, you know, now folks, you know, they have their big Christmas day. They, they go to church, they open the presents, they have a big meal, and then they watch the NBA at night. And it's, it's a great uh, bonding experience for families and friends. And then we have, of course, New Year's Day, which, you know, is, is um, you know, not a religious holiday or anything like that, but a very significant holiday, which brings together friends and family. And we see all kinds of college football bowl games. So I kind of see that NASCAR wants to make kind of make this a tradition, if you will, on Easter Sunday night, not during the day. I mean, I, I would be 110% against it being held during the day, but, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons and there's going to be a lot more talking, you know, uh, we're taping this on a Wednesday. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more talking, getting closer to the race. You know, you go on some of the fan chat boards and things like that, but Ben, I know you have some very strong opinions about it. You, you wrote about it in um, this week's uh, hot, um, hot takes in, um, in um, or hot heads rather in uh, out of the groove, uh, the weekly viewers guide. And I'm going to let you kind of talk about, you know, your thoughts about, NASCAR racing a uh, dirt race or just any kind of race for that matter on Easter Sunday. Yeah, Jerry. I mean, this is my, t- my opinion and, and everyone has their own opinion and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But in my opinion, I just feel like that Easter Sunday is by far more reverent than, than any of the rest. And I, I just think Easter Sunday should be held aside of all uh, you know, uh, sporting events, commercialization. Um, it's, it's a very holy day for Christian, many, hundreds of millions of Christians around the world, mm-hmm. myself included. I just don't believe that uh, any sports events like this should be held on, on this holy day. And I think it should be held aside. You know, we've had uh, races at Bristol on Saturday nights for years. Um, I just think that this this should be held uh, accountable for a, a holy day and we could race another day. That's my opinion. Now, I don't know whose idea it was. It doesn't matter. Um, and again, it, this is my opinion. I, it's fine if others don't agree with me, but you know, it's, it's just something that, uh, at least in my family, Easter is a very reverent day. And uh, I don't, think that you should do Easter and then, okay, we got that over with. Now let's go party and do whatever. I just don't think it's right. I think it's held much higher than, than all other uh, holidays. And uh, it's just something that should be, should remain reverent and holy and be held as such. And we should not be doing any kind of sporting events. And that's kind of thing on this day, we should do it on, another day and leave this a day of of reverence and a day of worship and uh that's what we should be doing Mm -hmm. but that's my opinion and that's not the way others may be taking it and that's what it is but that's just the way i feel about it well let me ask you this and again i'm going to use the same phrase i used when we were talking off the air and it's not the right phrase to say but it's kind of a good transition playing devil's advocate on Easter Sunday, but I'm trying to be a little lighthearted on this. Yeah. But, you know, this to me is a very, um, to, for lack of a better word, it's a very big experiment. 
on NASCAR's part, not only to have the, the dirt race at Bristol, but to have it on Easter Sunday evening. You know, your your points are very well taken. I agree with almost everything you said about, you know, that it, this is kind of infringing upon the highest holy day we have. But what happens if this proves to be very successful, both at track attendance, people watching on TV? Do you kind of see, and I'm, I'm going to take the religious aspect uh, out of the equation for a little bit here. Do you kind of see, though, this race potentially becoming very similar to what we saw, and we've talked about Darlington a lot in today's show. And we're going to, I'm going to bring it up again. Darlington started racing several years ago on Mother's Day, which used to be an absolute taboo. No, no, ever, 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 much like Easter. And surprisingly, many mothers got behind this race. And it's become a very good tradition on Mother's Day. So What's your thoughts about, you know, again, the, taking the religious aspect of it out of the equation, do you think this race Sunday night could potentially set a, a precedent or start a new tradition of us having a race on Easter night, be it Bristol, be it on dirt, be it somewhere else? What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, and, and respectfully, I say this, I, I think I I look at this day as a much, much higher day than Mother's Day. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't put it in the same category at all. I don't put it in the same category as Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't put it in the same category as New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I just put it in a much, much, much higher category. And uh, I would hate to see it become a commercialized day. I think it needs to be a day on its own to where it doesn't become another moneymaker for somebody. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, other, other sports, motorsports included, I don't know of anybody else that's doing anything as far as, um, uh, some major sporting activity on Easter. I just, You're correct. You're correct. you know, it's just, I just think it, it should re remain a reverent day where everybody takes the day off and celebrates the day for what it is. And, um, then we get back to life in general, um, on Monday or sat the previous Saturday and just let it be a holy day, as opposed to looking at the clock and saying, well, we got that over with let's, you know, let's, let's get back to making money and doing our thing. I, I don't believe in that. I think it should be a, a day that's held reverent and held holy and, honor it for what it truly is and put it above all days. And then, uh, and then let's get back to, you know, doing what we do, I guess, other days, but we need to take the day off and not, um, turn it into some commercialized day, uh, and just let it be on its own. That's just my opinion. Exactly. Well, Ben, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to try to, we're going to leave on a, on a, um, a humorous note, if you will, kind of, okay. kind of. Um, last year, when they had the Bristol night, uh, the, the dirt race, uh, you know, at night, it was held on a Sunday. It was the week before Easter, but you know, due to uh, weather, uh, there was some really bad weather out there. They had flood warnings and and that kind of thing. They pushed the race back to Monday. So, I'll tell you, I'm going to close the show with I think the best lighthearted way to to kind of oversee this entire thing we've been talking about about bristol and you know being on easter all i can say is this 
If we get rained out Sunday, it proves without a doubt, God says, <laughs> you're not racing on Easter anymore, buddy. <laughs> well, there might be something to that. And uh, let's just see how, how it all plays out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm glad I got a smile on your, your face and I, I got you to laugh. I mean, the, uh, you know, I agree with you about that. You know, there is certainly the racial, I mean, the religious significance, but yeah. I think that um, it'll be interesting. I mean, if, God, if it does get rained out, that proves without a doubt, God is not a race fan, at least not on Easter. You know, he's a race yeah. fan every other day, except, you know, 364 days a year, except for that one day. So we'll hey, see how that plays say, out. Let me say this too, Jerry. God sure. has forgiven us for a lot worse than this. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, he's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Folks, thank you ever so much for listening to us on episode number 59 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Really, really have enjoyed this conversation. The David Pearson uh, angle, I mean, you know, 50 years uh, ago, he, uh, you know, that Ben was there. I mean, we talked about, you know, the, the passing of our, our good buddy, um, Chris Browning, the former president of Donington. We talked about Bristol, the night race. We talked about the Bristol, you know, the, the ramifications of race and Easter. But, you know, all, all things considered, you know, I want to wish everybody, uh, you know, uh, those of you who celebrate Easter to have a, a good and safe, healthy and, and safe uh, Easter Sunday. Um, if you watch the race, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if, if God indeed does bring down the lightning and thunder or if God says, OK, just let it go under the lights. We'll see what happens, though. So anyway, again, for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you for listening to a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. We'll be back again next week with episode number 60. And you definitely want to talk to us and tune in that one because we're going to be talking about the big race that weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. So for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. You have a good weekend, everybody. Happy Easter to those of you who celebrate it. And we'll catch you next week on a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.